there were a couple handouts that hopefully you picked out, you picked up. Um, first of all, there was a handout from the Idea Channel. Uh, the Idea Channel has all of the videos that uh, in the Milton Friedman Free to Choose series, uh, both for sale and I believe currently free in streaming video on their website. Uh, the, ad the address is, uh, is on the, the handout that we have. It's just uh, ideachannel.tv. Um, and they also mentioned something that, uh, that I wanted to point out, which is on uh, PBS on January 29th, there's going to be a, bi a biography of Milton Friedman. Um, it has some more information that you can see on the handout and on the website. But I encourage you to, uh, to take a look at this handout as well as to tune in on the 29th to see the Friedman biography. Um, also, there's a uh, DVD on the table. Uh, the DVD is a, uh, uh, comes from our uh, Milton Friedman uh, Freedom Prize, it's, which is a biannual, biennial award that we hand out, and we have a dinner as well that accompanies it. Uh, this, one, this video will feature uh, George Will, who is our keynote speaker, as well as some biographical notes on Milton Friedman and some other commentary from other speakers. Um, that is another uh, free DVD that we're handing out, so I encourage you to pick that up. And you also note that uh, we, we published just a couple months ago uh, a Milton Friedman book uh, actually related specifically to school choice. Uh, there's a handout that describes the book in a little bit more detail on the table. And we have a few books um, on hand here today. If you're a Hill staffer, we will provide these books free of charge. So if we run out of them today and you're interested in picking one up, uh, please let us know and we'll be sure to get one to you. If you're not a Hill staffer, you're free to purchase them. Uh, there's information on the back of the card that will give you information on how to purchase those books. Uh, the last handout on the table is an op-ed uh, that ran in the Orange County Register written by David Bose. Uh, coincidentally enough, David Bose is here with us today, uh, and he is going to be giving us a few comments on Milton Friedman. So I encourage you to read his op-ed. Um, but now I will go ahead and turn things over to Cato's Executive Vice President, David Bose. Milton Friedman died a couple of weeks ago, and there was a huge outpouring of praise. There was a lot of media attention, and most of it was very positive. And in some ways, that's a very natural thing. In other ways, it's a reminder of how much has changed, because for a large part of Milton Friedman's life, he was regarded as uh, an outmoded relic of the 19th century, a crank, an extremist. Um, back in the days when John Kenneth Galbraith was thought to be the nation's greatest economist, Friedman was some kind of oddball. I think both of those intellectual reputations changed a lot over the long lives of Galbraith and Friedman. The Financial Times wrote in its obituary that Milton Friedman was the last of the great economists to combine possession of a household name with the highest professional credentials partly because economics has become so specialized. These days, the economists who have the most respect within the profession are very rarely public figures. They're rarely good communicators about public issues. And to some extent, there's an argument about whether economists should spend their time coming up with better and more intricate models or whether they should be talking to people about the fundamental truths of economics. And Milton Friedman is somebody who combined both of those skills and achieve the highest levels in both. Over Friedman's long life, he had the satisfaction of seeing the world turn in his direction. As I wrote in this op-ed there, he was born in New York in 1912 at the end of a long period of peace and prosperity. 
1815 to 1914, the longest period of general European peace and prosperity um, in history, really. And the first half of his life, unfortunately, born in 1912, 1914 was the coming of World War I, and in the first half of his life, he saw a series of catastrophic setbacks to the cause of peace and prosperity. World War I, the Bolshevik coup in Russia, um, the rise of fascism and national socialism, World War II, communist domination of half of the world. Happily, Friedman's parents had left Eastern Europe for America, so they avoided the cataclysms that took place there. One of the indications of the cataclysms of the 20th century is what Friedman wrote in his Nobel Prize autobiography about where his parents came from. He said, my parents were born in Carpatho-Ruthenia, then a province of Austria-Hungary, later part of interwar Czechoslovakia, and currently of the Soviet Union. But since he wrote that autobiography, the Soviet Union has broken up and his parents now came from Ukraine. But there are still uh, arguments about whether it should be returned to Hungary. But it wasn't just in Eastern Europe. Freedom was under challenge in the United States as well. One year after Friedman was born, uh, the United States got the income tax and the Federal Reserve Board. World War I ushered in government planning on an unprecedented scale, and a lot of people thought that planning worked so well in World War I that they wanted to follow it up in peacetime, and you got prohibition, which actually was part of the whole World War I progressivism, and the New Deal and Keynesian economics, and the general belief that the federal government could solve any problem there was. And then, after World War II, with the big government mentality almost unchallenged in the United States, Milton Friedman began writing. He first wrote about technical economic issues, laying the groundwork for a later shift in U.S. monetary policy. And if we just tick through some of the accomplishments there, in 1953, he published his Essays in Positive Economics, where he advanced what he called positivist methodology. This was supposed to be an empirically-based way of looking at economics, not a priori, not theoretical, but you state a hypothesis and you test it and you find out if it works. Um, he talked in the 1950s about floating exchange rates. At that time, a lot of countries had fixed exchange rates. The dollar is worth exactly this much compared to the pound, the mark, the yen. Friedman argued that there's a price for everything in the marketplace and there's a price for currencies as well. Uh, he wrote a book called The Theory of the Consumption Function, and he talked about permanent income. And the policy lesson from that was consumers are difficult to prod by fine-tuning of the economy because consumers take a long-run view of their income. Consumers understand that when your kids are small or when your kids are going to college, you're going to be spending more, that you'll save when your kids are not Either, either haven't been born yet or are not being as expensive as they are at other times, that you will then withdraw money later in your life, and that the government's attempt to pretend that your income has gone up a little bit or has gone down a little bit will generally not work because consumers are smarter than that. In 1963, he published The Monetary History of the United States along with Anna Schwartz. This was the great book laying out the case that Monetary policy is what causes inflation and recession and depression, showing how that had happened over the history of the United States. Um, 
probably the most important, most prominent academic work that he did. And in 1967, he was named president of the American Economic Association, and in his presidential address, he took on the idea of the Phillips curve. Anybody here who's as old as I am grew up with this idea of the Phillips curve. There's a trade-off between inflation and unemployment. Conservatives worry more about inflation, and liberals worry more about unemployment. So if you're worried about businesses, then you should be a conservative and try to keep down inflation. And if you worry about people, you should be a liberal and try to keep down unemployment. Friedman said, in the long run, this isn't true. In the long run, people catch on to what's going on with inflation, and you'll end up with higher and higher levels of unemployment after each bout of inflation. It led to the concept of the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, and along with his monetary history, it really led to a worldwide revolution recognizing that inflation is not a good thing. There used to be a lot of people who thought inflation was good for the average guy. And very few people make that case anymore. And so that was one of Friedman's great academic accomplishments. And as his academic work came to be widely recognized, he started writing for a broader audience. In 1962, there was all this enthusiasm for John F. Kennedy's new frontier. Now we're going to really get the government involved in leading the country. Friedman published probably his most popular, most important uh, popular book anyway, Capitalism and Freedom. And a whole generation of young intellectuals and political activists read this book in the 1960s and it set them on the course of changing the United States and a great bit of the world from the notion that government planning can solve every problem and to the idea that capitalism and freedom go hand in hand. In that book, he proposed school vouchers to bring the benefits of competition to education. He talked about a flat rate tax to make the income tax less burdensome. And he talked about floating exchange rates, which he had done in academic terms but had not yet happened. <coughs> For the next 40 years, Friedman remained one of America's most important voices on behalf of individual freedom. He wrote a column for Newsweek from 1966 to 1983. It was every third week. Every third week, there was sound economics on one page of Newsweek, if not on any other page. Um, he lectured widely around the world. He uh, uh, came to Vanderbilt when I was there in 1973, and I went up to him and asked him. I didn't have much money when I was in college, so I couldn't really afford to buy one of his books, so I asked him to sign my Vanderbilt course catalog. And he looked at it and laughed and said, well, they always say signing the book keeps it off the remainder shelves. I guess that doesn't apply in this case. He also appeared on television. He used to go on Phil Donahue and shows like that and talk about economic freedom and political freedom. And, of course, during the course of all this, halfway through his Newsweek column, he won the Nobel Prize in economics. And he was only the second free market economists to get that. Um, Hayek had gotten it in 1974 along with the Swedish socialist Gunnar Myrdal, which sort of raised the question. They did this several times in the Nobel Prize. Hayek and Myrdal said opposite things. So the Nobel Prize is honoring two people, at least one of whom had to be wrong. But they both got the Nobel Prize. Friedman fortunately got it by himself. So you didn't have to weigh at least that year, well, this idea can't be right if this idea is right, and yet they both just won a Nobel Prize. So that really propelled Friedman to a new level of prominence beyond the Newsweek column, 
And that was one of the things that led Bob Chittister of a small PBS station to go to him and say, Galbraith has made this PBS documentary on why we need big government. You should make one on why we don't. And it took a while to persuade him, but eventually he did. He traveled all over the world. He filmed Free to Choose in Hong Kong and Europe and around the United States. And in January 1980, PBS started showing this 10-part series, Free to Choose. January 1980, you may recall, is a few months after Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister of Great Britain and about the time Ronald Reagan was launching his campaign to be President of the United States. I certainly wouldn't say that Friedman's TV show and book made Reagan President, but they were galvanizing a movement in the direction of, boy, we have really exhausted the concept of government planning. It's time to look for some new ideas. Um, Free to Choose was a TV show. It was also a book. It was the best-selling nonfiction book of 1980. Millions of people watched it and came to understand how markets worked. One of the viewers was a young actor at that time named Arnold Schwarzenegger. And 14 years later, Schwarzenegger said, in Austria, I noticed that people would worry about when they would get their pension. In America, they would worry if they were going to meet their potential. Friedman's books explained to me how a dynamic capitalist system allows people to fulfill their dreams. In 1990, Free to Choose was rebroadcast in somewhat abbreviated form, and one of the things they did was get famous people to do introductions to the um, uh, episodes. Um, those people included Ronald Reagan, George Schultz, um, Steve Allen. Anybody here know who Steve Allen was? <laughs> A few of the older people. <laughs> Steve Allen was an older Steve Allen was an old guy in 1990, uh, but he was been a TV personality and he was a well-known liberal. So to get him to do an introduction was kind of interesting. And one of the people who introduced one of the segments was Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, and that obviously had something to do with launching Schwarzenegger into a more political uh, world. Friedman was often an advisor to Republican presidents and candidates. He was an advisor to Barry Goldwater, somewhat less effectively to Nixon. Um, also to Reagan, but he always insisted that he was not a conservative. He was a liberal in the tradition of Thomas Jefferson and John Stuart Mill, or he would concede in the modern world, you could call me a libertarian, but he never liked the word conservative. Around the world, Friedman became an important advisor to governments around the world, certainly to Reagan, also to Margaret Thatcher, although Thatcher herself would have said that she had been more influenced by John Stuart Mill and Hayek than she was by Friedman. In Chile, Friedman and some of his supporters, some of his students, went to Chile and advised the military government of Augusto Pinochet how to reform the economy. That became a matter of huge criticism when he went to Sweden to get the Nobel Prize. There were shouts of protest. There were protesters outside. Everywhere he went, um, there were um, protests about his having advised the murderous government of Chile. Um, when he was about 85 years old, I saw a six-foot-two Naderite smash a pie in the face of the five-foot-two, 85-year-old Milton Friedman. That was his way of rebutting Friedman's economics. And it all stemmed from this advice to the military government of Chile, advice that turned Chile into the most successful economy in the world. He was always critical of the military government and its policies, but he did say... I can tell you how to cure certain problems like inflation and unemployment. 
He also went to China. He went to China three times. He advised the communist totalitarian government of China. To my knowledge, he was never criticized for that. There were never any protests at Berkeley or Harvard or Ann Arbor because Milton Friedman had advised the murderous totalitarian communist government of China. Um, he went there, um, I believe actually it was his second trip, went there with the Cato Institute for a conference that we did in 1988. And during that trip, he also met with the general secretary of the Communist Party, Zhao Ziyang. Zhao was deposed the next year because he advocated a liberal policy toward the protesters in Tiananmen Square. And there were some people who also criticized him for having met with Milton Friedman. In Czechoslovakia, after 1989, the prime minister was Václav Klaus, um, who was described as a Friedmanite with a staff of Hayekians. He himself was a big reader of Friedman, but a lot of his staff read Hayek. And in Estonia, Mark Lahr um, attributes his success in reforming the government of Estonia to the fact that he read Free to Choose, and it was the only economics book he had read, and it never occurred to him that these weren't commonly accepted Western ideas because they made so much sense. So he said he implemented the ideas in Free to Choose, and only then did people say, you know, lots of people don't believe that. But it worked pretty well in Estonia, including the flat tax. Flat tax went on to be adopted in a number of Eastern European countries. We had a speaker the other day at Cato from Slovakia who had implemented the flat tax there. When we talk about Friedman, we talk mostly about economics. But he was not just about economics. He was about freedom in his public life. He said, um, my central theme in public advocacy has been the promotion of human freedom. And he talked about the connection between economic and political freedom, but he also talked about various kinds of freedom that you would not think of as economic. One of the most important, every man in this room owes to him gratitude for helping to destroy the draft. Um, certainly I uh, would have been drafted had it not been for the um, end of the draft just before I turned 18. Those of us who are my age, from my age on up to Bill Clinton's age, when we heard Bill Clinton in 1992 saying, I wrote that letter to my draft board three days after the lottery without knowing what my lottery number was, we knew for sure this guy lied because nobody didn't know what their draft lottery number was immediately. It was the most important thing in your life, and there's no way you wrote a letter to your draft board not knowing that you had or had not drawn a low number. But... This ended partly because Milton Friedman convinced a young congressman named Donald Rumsfeld that a volunteer army would be better than a draft, partly because he served on a commission that the Nixon administration appointed, and there was a famous moment in those commission hearings when General Westmoreland said, I don't want to command an army of mercenaries. And Friedman shot back, do you prefer commanding an army of slaves? They went on to recommend getting rid of the draft and... It did, in fact, end. Friedman was also an outspoken opponent of the war on drugs, which he thought violated individual liberty and led to bad results. And it's because of all those causes that the Cato Institute named the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty after Friedman, the greatest advocate of liberty of the past half century. There's still unfinished business on Milton Friedman's agenda, school choice, he would point to as the most important thing that he had worked for that has not really happened yet. Free trade is always in trouble, partly because of farm subsidies, one of the things he had pointed to in capitalism and freedom. 
and the fact that the state is still growing as fast as the economy by some measures, including notably the, uh, the size of the, the government as a percentage of GDP. But despite that, he had a huge impact. On January 29th, PBS will tell millions of people about the impact that Milton Friedman had. Um, I'll be back up here in a few minutes to take questions, if anybody has any questions that I am capable of answering. But in the meantime, we want to show you uh, one of the segments of Free to Choose. You can watch these on the web. Not that I find watching hour-long videos. Uh, this one is not an hour long. This is the abbreviated version. But the original ones were an hour long. And I'm not keen on watching hour-long videos on my computer. But if you are, um, or if you want to download them, you can find these on the web. And I encourage you to do that. Right now, let's watch The Tyranny of Control. Um, I think monetary history of the United States is, um, uh, and Friedman's monetary policy in general, is almost a commonplace now in economics departments. Now, English literature and sociology departments, I'm not so sure. But in economics departments, I think monetarism, broadly speaking, the idea that the supply of money is going to determine the overall price level, I think is pretty much a commonplace. Um, most people accept that. It's standard textbook stuff these days. And I don't think there would be any disagreement that a monetary history of the United States is a major um, academic uh, achievement. Certainly compared to when I was in college in the 70s, there are more students being assigned to read Friedman as well as Hayek and other people than there used to be. Um, I would point out, in most undergraduate courses, you don't read original authors. You don't, I mean, you don't read Capitalism and Freedom in an economics class because it's not really an economics book. It's a, it's a public book. And you don't read a monetary history of the United States. You read a textbook that will summarize the current state of understanding of monetary uh, theory and policy. So I don't think in classes like that these books are assigned very often. In advanced seminars on monetary policy, Certainly, they do then read a monetary history of the United States. And I think compared to the 1970s, you would find capitalism and freedom and free to choose being more often assigned in political science, government, um, American survey classes, but not as much as they should be. Um, clearly, I talk to Cato interns all the time who have not been assigned any reading of Friedman or Hayek or Nozick or any of the other candidates um, that should be. I think it's an indication of how much is, is being taught in colleges these days that there is no reader in classical liberalism in print today. I have several on my shelf published in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and they're all out of print. Now, there are readers in modern political philosophy, and those include most of the great classical liberals, but there used to be classical liberal readers, and there aren't any of those in print today, so... I think that's a sign of, of moving away from that. It may also be just a sign of the dumbing down of the college experience overall, that people are no longer reading original sources. Yes?
Well, I think serving in government in the 40s was certainly a revelation to him. Um, You know, the biggest mistake he ever made was helping the government implement income tax withholding. As a scientific economist, this made perfect sense. Makes sense for the government to get its money 12 times a year instead of one time a year. It's no question that, you know, rationally, and even for the individual, if you know you're going to end up paying $6,000, you might as well do it on a monthly basis. What I think he didn't envision was how much easier that would make it for the government to collect much larger sums of money. And so that was a revelation to him. Um, And just the general study of economics, he started out as a math whiz, and he did some mathematics. And it was later, as he studied economics, that he came to understand the way the world works. So I'm not sure there was a particular um, point other than his growing experience observing bureaucracy in action and his study of actual economics and not just uh, mathematics and then the most theoretical elements of economics. Right here. Yes, I think he probably did. A very low flat rate income tax I think he would have supported. Now, there certainly are libertarians who think an income tax is worse than a property tax, a head tax, a sales tax, something less intrusive. Um, I don't know that Friedman took that position. I think he would have said an income tax, did say, an income tax is an efficient way to raise the money government needs. It should be a flat tax. It should be minimally intrusive and distorting. And since government should be a lot smaller than it is, then it would be a much lower tax. And in that case, I think he would have considered that the best way. I I don't want to say never. He wrote an awful lot, and I certainly haven't read it all. Um, He would have understood the arguments for a consumption tax, but I don't recall him. Uh, Economically... The distinction between a low flat rate income tax with savings exempted and a consumption tax is very small. And so if you could, if you could actually have the pure form of an income tax that economists would recommend, then it wouldn't make that much difference. The more political argument is that an income tax requires some intrusiveness into your reporting your uh, economic activities to the government. But that's not so much a, a, a theoretical economic point. Yes, over there. Well, I think that Friedman was very critical of the kind of inequality of wealth and distribution that you get in non-market economies, which is the 
the place he came from, or his parents came from, uh, Austria-Hungary, most of the world, India, China, Africa, old Europe, the Ancien Regime, all of those places had inequalities that were created by coercion, by caste systems and class systems and nobility and so on. And all of those things, he was very critical, as all classical liberals were. But no, I don't think that he thought that in a market economy, um, inequality was a problem and that, that any level of inequality was a problem. He was in China three times, and during the time he was in China, a great deal of, in theory, inequality occurred. When he first went there, everybody in China was poor, although the political leaders lived quite well. They may not have had income. I mean, they weren't paying income taxes or anything. So I don't know what their incomes would have shown, but the way they lived was they lived in palaces and were allowed to travel internationally on 727s and 747s, and that was very different from the way average people lived. Today in China, there are income taxes and so on, and there are people who have very high incomes, but they've gotten them by selling things and producing things for average Chinese people so that the overall standard of living has risen. And um, he did have a chapter in the book, uh, Free to Choose, on equality. And one of the points he makes there is the more important thing to most people is, am I better off? Not is Bill Gates better off than I am, but am I better off than I was last year? Are my children going to be better off than I am? And in that context, no, I don't think he worried about a level of inequality that was produced in a growing free market. Well... No history is pristine. In a monarchical system, there have always been some elements of rising by your own bootstraps, by your own effort, and in a free system, nothing is perfect. But when you think about the richest people in America, Bill Gates, not particularly benefited by any land grabs in the past. I mean, he created Microsoft. Um, Warren Buffett, Great investor. He's not depending on anything like that. I think the next five slots are all Waltons. And Sam Walton started out driving a pickup truck and running a little uh, uh, dime store and turned it into Walmart because he discovered that if you could sell toothpaste for 10 cents less to poor people, you could make a lot of money. So if we went far enough down on the list, sure, we would find some people. But I'm trying to think. Think about the Vanderbilts. The uh, Commodore Vanderbilt, I know this because I went to Vanderbilt, Commodore Vanderbilt was a pretty hard-boiled rapscallion when, when he was born, you know, a simple farming family, and he turned out to have a genius for seeing where the economy was going. So it was a rough-and-tumble time. Um, he was one of the great robber barons. The, he's famous for buying up a lot of the stock of his company, shorting it, ruining the members of the New York legislature. But why did he do that? Because they were trying to use the power of government to buy up his stock, short it, and then take away his right to build a railroad. So he was responding to political control. So I'm sure if we, if we kept on going, we could come up with examples, but 
over the generations, I think the free market does erode a lot of that privilege and it produces a lot of opportunity. And so I think that overwhelmingly the level of inequality in the United States is a product of market processes. And as long as we still have free entry and open access to the economy, and, and there are definitely limits on that that I would like to get rid of. I mean, there are 800 uh, jobs for which you have to get a license to, to enter, and I don't think that should be the case. And Friedman was very critical of occupational licensing. But even within that context, I think the inequality in the United States is largely a result of market forces. And certainly, when we talk about increasing inequality in the United States, the only way that's true is to look at the richest people, the Waltons and the Gateses. Every day that Microsoft stock goes up, inequality widens in America. Because Bill Gates has another billion dollars and most of us don't. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. If Microsoft stock goes up, I'm a teensy, teensy bit richer, and Bill Gates is a lot richer, and that's fine. Um, so, no, I don't think Friedman worried about that for the reasons that I've outlined. All right, I know that even the remaining few of you have to get back to work. So thanks very much for coming. Uh, do find Free to Choose on the website, uh, on the web, and uh, watch January 29th for uh, the Milton Friedman biography.